Hello everyone, I'm Daniel Bryant and I'd like to welcome you to the Ambassador Living on the Edge podcast, the show that focuses on all things related to cloud native platforms, creating effective developer workflows and building modern APIs. Today I'm joined by Ala Babkina, Head of Engineering at Head Start, a diversity recruitment platform. I've followed Al's work for many years now, and we briefly worked together at a consultancy company in London called Open Credo. Ala was a superb consulting colleague and had the unique ability to become productive with practically any technology within a matter of days. She also always kept the big picture in mind, such as the leadership and the organisational drivers, which, trust me, wasn't always an easy thing to do. Recently, Ala has worked on and led several teams that have built cloud-native platforms, and so I was keen to understand what her key learnings here have been. I was keen to also ask questions around her technical experiences here, recommendations for tech, but also understand how she prioritised and balanced the related business concerns. If you like what you're here today, I definitely encourage you to pop over to our website, that's getambassador.io, where we have a range of articles, white papers and videos that provide more information for engineers working in the Kubernetes and cloud space. You can also find links there to our latest releases, such as the Ambassador Edge Stack, our open source Ambassador API Gateway, and also our CNCF hosted telepresence Kubernetes tool too. Hey, Anna, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Daniel. Nice to see you again. So could you briefly introduce yourself, please, and share a recent career highlight? My name is Ala. I've been working with Head Start, a diversity recruitment software platform as head of engineering for the past six months. I've recently, just about a year and a half ago, moved more into tech leadership, where I started off as a Java developer, having switched careers from a lawyer, went all the way from full stack to very deep backend to distributed systems to operations and uh, distributed cloud systems, and now ended up uh, managing all of tech uh, in a small startup. You're like perfect for this podcast, Ali. You've literally done all <laughs> the roles possible, yeah, which is, is perfect. <laughs> so what I wanted to pick your brains about today was like developer experience and in particular inner development loops. So from having an idea to coding, to testing, to deploying, to releasing and verifying. And it can be actually the tech stuff, or you can talk about it from a leadership perspective as well. But I wanted to dive into tech at the beginning. Like, Without naming names, could you describe the worst thing you had to deal with where you were coding and you needed to get something into production and it just wasn't working? As a developer, I wouldn't be able to say straight away, I've been pretty lucky in my career. But there was one engagement that I was involved in, which included handing over the technology from uh, a startup that has failed to one of its major investors. And I was brought on site for five uh, billable days to do a technical handover and technical diagram. In the five days, the best I've managed to get is to get the code base checked out on someone else's uh, <laughs> laptop because I couldn't get access to even the office Wi-Fi. Although I did have a card to the canteen where everything was free and we couldn't get the project to even uh, build in the IDE because you couldn't get access to the standard Maven repositories. You needed to get everything pre-approved, which took at least a week up front. And I couldn't install any of the usual software I would use or use it in the cloud because of the firewalls. So at the end of five full working days, apart from having a couple of nice coffees at the canteen, I managed to deliver a drawing in uh, Microsoft Paint of, <laughs> oh, nice. of a financial trading platform. And that was my deliverable. So I couldn't even touch the code. Wow. 
that that's probably the the record that that wins the award <laughs> worst experience so far i think of all, all people i've chatted to what about your best developer loop and like you could even describe something you're working on now or has there been this like that magic moment we all know as developers you get that magic moment where it's super easy you have the idea you code it you test it you see it running and you see the users getting value what's your experience been like in regards to that so this is actually quite a recent experience this was a head start it was before the recent couple of people joined so the team was still pretty small it was the perfect developer and team an agile delivery and CI, CD experience. So our goal from the beginning of the year and something that we put into our OKRs was to get really, really, really comfortable with continuous delivery and shipping to production without sweating too much, at least five times a day as a team. I think that's a pretty big goal. So in order to illustrate how that might work, we organized what we call a FIKA. So that's Swedish for coffee break. We have these every Friday and it's a relaxed two hour session where we either get to talk about something tech or to do something together or just to chat around things we don't get to chat uh, within the normal week. And we decided that within that FICA, we would identify a candidate for something that we could get something valuable. So it couldn't just be code refactoring that no one sees, something valuable to the user that we could design, deliver test and showcase to the rest of the company not a demo but announce it on our product um, updates channel within two hours and we had a couple of candidates Uh, so it turned out that within the application process for a very long time we have been collecting extenuating circumstances for graduate candidates so where they would have completed a degree maybe not with the best grade or it took them longer and they could say why and we were not highlighting it to the recruiters. So we were using it in some of our um, matching algorithm, but we were not highlighting it to the recruiters. And we thought, okay, it would be pretty good to show the recruiters if a candidate has something in their history. So it was pretty simple. It's more or less like a read model, but we've identified where to place it within the existing front end for the recruiters how to display it, how much to display, whether to repeat it or not, to fight out a design decision. So this was before we hired a visual designer and no one was very much into design back then. And to get it delivered with two commits and really quick peer reviews and tests within two hours, announce it on the product updates channel. And it was a massive hit with the rest of the team. And I think there were, there were social media posts around that we're doing this and that we're trying to give people who might have had difficult circumstances a chance. And this felt particularly good because we knew that for some people it would be life-changing. So after we've taken a look, we've seen people with histories like, I didn't complete my degree on time because I was involved in a hit-and-run accident and was in a coma in the hospital for a couple of months. Yeah. So that that was a massive success story. Or although it took a leap of faith for the rest of the team to to go there. Like, how can you deliver a feature on a call all together in VS Code within two hours? <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can. <laughs> how about testing though? How do you test that? So we run automated tests for the API. So that works. For the front end, because of its simplicity on the corporate side, we don't have a big 
test suite for that. So we normally do a smoke test, but we're moving in that direction as well. So we're looking for something that won't slow us down. We can't afford to run a full-blown end-to-end test suite every time we deploy because we deploy up to 15 times a day now and it'll just not leave any time. But we also want to make sure uh, that we don't break anything too often. Yeah, it makes sense. How important do you think it is for developers to understand the business context they're working in? You mentioned about breaking things there. I'm guessing the engineers like breaking stuff, there is just code not working, but there's also bad user experience for folks. Yeah. So like, how, yeah, I guess the question is, how do you, how important is it for developers to understand the business and how would you go about upskilling them in understanding things? So with the current team, luckily, uh, I don't have to upskill anyone, maybe downskill a little bit. The team has been effectively the product team for three years. So everyone's very, very involved. But I think that that's a privileged situation to be in. So engineering is not, it's, it's not science. You're not inventing anything, really. You're coming up with solutions from existing building blocks by combining them, choosing between different options and so on. So you need to make decisions. <laughs> and in order to, need to, to make decisions, you need to understand the criteria. And the only way to understand the criteria is to know what, what are you trying to achieve in the end. So uh, not understanding the business context means that a lot of this gets lost and developers end up making the wrong decisions uh, in the bigger picture. So they might be good decisions within a particular written up ticket or story or task, whichever way you frame this, but it won't be the right decision within the business context. And uh, engineers are clever. They they usually sense this. They're, they're sensing that they're doing something wrong and there's an agency problem there that I've done my part of the job, but uh, it doesn't really work. What about going down perhaps a level architecture i don't know if you use microservices but it seems like almost everyone uses some form of service oriented architecture how important do you think it is for developers to understand this notion of being able to say you know decompose systems into functions services modules call it what you will so in order to understand how to decompose them usually developers need to understand why so you can't say we're doing decomposition now we're using microservices uh, that's that's a bit of cargo culting on on my team that causes a lot of pushing back so the the team is quite reluctant to adopt microservices for the sake of microservices so we are having discussions as to why they would be beneficial there are two things to consider that the first one is the way that the teams um, communicate so you can communicate via service boundaries, service contracts, service structures, service requirements. You could do the same with service modules, for instance. You could do this with code structures. It doesn't have to be on infrastructure level or deployable unit level. So you need to understand why you're doing this. That's the first one. The second thing that you need to think about when decomposing services is the operational model. So you need to know who's going to be running what and when and how to what SLAs. Again, it comes back to communication to internal and external stakeholders. You also need to understand uh, who's responsible down to what level of abstraction. 
because there's a lot more operational work involved in microservices than deploying a single monolith, whatever it may be. It can be a microservice if your service is small. <laughs> it's just one <laughs> microservice. <laughs> but there's a lot more involved in that because you need to you need to develop the platform to run these services on. Mm, yes, you need yes, to yeah. think how they're going to communicate between themselves. And that, again, goes back to the operational model. How important do you think it is for developers to be operationally aware? And uh, kind of where my question's going with that is I guess there's only so much developers can learn. Do you know what I mean? They've got the business context now. They've got architecture. I've got to be ops aware too. It seems like a lot. I think that's the key question of 2020. I saw a really funny gift somewhere. It might be from one of the colleagues that we used to work together with. Uh, full stack developer 2020, which is someone who knows how to make homemade sourdough and some neuroscience <laughs> and uh, some some team psychology and some business and some finance and networking and security. So I think we're we're going back to the full stack model a little bit. So developers do need to understand uh, operations within the limits of what the organization expects them. So they're different operational models. What they need to understand is when is their work done and when is it done to a sufficient standard? So in the universe that I've been operating in for the past couple of years, that does involve thinking about running the software after it's delivered. It doesn't involve SRE work per se, so normally developers would run their services on some sort of a platform, public one or an internally one developed, but it requires awareness of operational aspects. So developers would be expected to understand at a minimum how computers work, not just the language API. So you do need to understand what is memory intensive, what is CPU intensive, at least on a, on a high level. You don't need to know the memory model of your language in depth, but you need to understand that this is just memory intensive because you load a lot of data into memory and then you do something with it and then you output it, as opposed to this is something that involves a lot of computation, so this will be CPU intensive. So just understanding where it goes and to be able to make the right use of the platform. And the thing that I've been talking about a lot recently, uh, because of my previous experience before Head Start as um, head of platform at uh, ClearScore, is every developer needs to write their software imagining two things. So one is, the one that's been known for many years as a meme now, that you need to think that the person who's reading your code next is a, a psycho yeah. who knows where you live. <laughs> yes. You don't want to upset them in terms of reading. But the second thing that they need to understand is imagine if you wrote a piece of code and you were called up at 3 a.m. saying, hey, this thing is broken and I don't understand why. And you need to guide me exactly through how to say where, where is it broken and how to fix it and whether it's fixable. So you need to leave breadcrumbs, if not for the support person who will be there, then for yourself, if you're in a, you build it, you run it environment. This is actually an interview question I've been using recently. We're not hiring at the moment. And I've, I've taken that question down. It proved to be very unpopular because it scares people. 
So one of the candidates actually gave feedback and said, oh, I can't work for you because, uh, you know, your head of engineering will call me up at 3 a.m. and say, you have to fix this code. <laughs> like, that's not what I said. <laughs> I said, imagine. So I had to pad this question with disclaimer saying, we don't operate in 24-7 support policy, so I will not call you at 3 a.m. This is just a scenario. But it's good to think about it like that because I've been called at 3 a.m. Well, not called, but paged by, by page duty with, with things which were broken and was thankful for all the breadcrumbs left by by engineers, by ops, by, by the whole team. I like the idea of breadcrumbs because I've been in the same situation. I was like, I need breadcrumbs and I should have left myself more of them. When mm. you say breadcrumbs, what, what kind of stuff do you mean? Like listeners are thinking, I like the sound of this. What kind of stuff do I leave future me or my team? Yeah, so you need to you need to understand uh, the numbers that you want to have to determine whether your service or your piece of code or the whole system is operating normally or if something is wrong. So in the first place, you need metrics. So metrics are by definition numeric. So you need to know what normal looks like. And you can't get that retrospectively. So you need to build it early on so you have some time over which you can say this is this is our normal so sometimes that might be a day in more predictable applications uh, like banking there's a normal day so if you track it over a week somewhere in the summer that's normal uh, in our industry that might be a year because what is normal it's very seasonal so what is normal in january which is downtime it it looks like dead time in September. So in September, it might be 100 times higher. So you need to understand what your normal is over some period of time with numbers. And if the numbers tell you that something's wrong, you need to leave, at a minimum, you need to leave uh, logs that will tell you what is wrong in a specific instance. So you leave metrics for the global view of the system where it's the rule of big numbers, it's statistics, and you add logs for where you want very, very specific information on every case. Say folks are building a system that is not just a monolith, it's maybe got some microservices and lambdas in the mm. mix. Have you got any advice on how to locate where things are going wrong? Something I've frequently stumbled on. Yeah, like I'm reasonably good with metrics, logs, you know, definitely learned my lesson the hard way on that one. But what I'm finding with building these systems where we're composing them of many different things, I can't even find where the problem is. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? I know my users are getting 503s, don't know where it's happening. Any yeah. advice from your your past on that one? So this is, this is the complex topic that's only evolving uh, properly now. So we're talking about observability, and that's not easy to get right. So with that's one of the downsides of distributed systems and microservice architectures. You need to trace an operation which is atomic from the user's perspective because the user can't see it encompasses 12 different systems and three Kafka clusters across four continents somehow. So you need to be able to trace a single operational across many services. And again, this is something that needs to be built from the ground up. So it needs to be built from the beginning. And this is why it's really important for engineers to understand what it is. So you can't bolt on metrics. This is this is something that teams uh, struggle with 
occasionally they think, oh, well, the platform team or the SRE team or the operations team or the DevOps team, and I air quote here, the DevOps team that does all the DevOpsing and collaborating, they will do all of our metrics, but they can't because they don't know what your service is doing. Your service is a container to them. So you need to build it inside. You need uh, it, It's like a cyborg organism. You need to build it in. You can't put it on as a shell, as an Iron Man suit. And this is... This is where developer upskilling is is necessary. So developers often ask, but but how am I expected to know all of this Terraform stuff and all of the things about container users and all of the things about rolling policies and so on? Well, you don't have to know all of it, but you have to go an extra step with ops and say, look, I really want to make my service operational i really want it to be running smoothly even if you're the ones who will be running it most of the time how do i make this operable same as people who specialize in operations need to take that extra step to educate another person every day on how these things work and i think that that we're all guilty of what is called unconscious competence where you think that you think that Kubernetes policies are, you know, RBAC is common knowledge, isn't it? <laughs> like everyone knows how it works. Easy. Why are you asking me this? But you have to put yourself in the shoes of, say, a front-end developer who all, all they know is single-app applications. And they do them well and they optimize them. And then they might have to containerize these applications, even if they are single-page in order to be able to run them on the same cluster to achieve another goal and you need to lend them a hand. We need to meet each other in the middle. So devs and ops and, and business. Even with all this DevOps, I think that's still a number one problem, isn't it? That kind of collaboration with folks. And I think a lot of it, from my experience, it does, you've hinted at this several times already, it does sort of start at the platform. If you get your platform right, I think it falls in together. Have you got any advice for folks on building, buying, creating a platform? With the platform, you need to always remember who you're building it for. So the platform and the type of people that will be operating on the platform, not the platform, but on the platform who will be using it, are inseparable. So if you make certain decisions on the platform, like we we will give the developers all the control so we will let them do whatever but on the flip side they will need to think about memory management and they will need to think about how to achieve uh, canary deployments and they will have to think about how to implement health checks properly then you're putting yourself in a position where you can only hire a certain type of developer so you can hire a developer who's an all-rounder or can pick everything up They'll probably cost a lot more money, the fewer of them on the market. And it raises the question of, do you need the platform team at all? Or maybe you need a couple of experts who can help full stacks 2020 to do some operational things that are way too deep, like networking. On the other hand, if you want to abstract things away, you need to run the platform as a proper product. So it needs to be a product like the product you're serving to the customers. 
it needs to have proper documentation, it needs to have proper release cycles, it needs to have proper release planning, it needs to have end of support, and all of the things which uh, need a product management capacity. So it doesn't have to be a product manager, product manager, it can be a technical manager, or it can be someone within the team who's interested, but it needs that capacity. It can't be hacked. Otherwise, you're just building a very unfriendly, ambiguous piece of software, which is meant to boost everyone's uh, performance or efficiency, but in the end ends up costing a lot uh, and confusing everyone and making everyone stressed out. Yeah, I've definitely done that one by mistake <laughs> in, the, in the past. I've, several smart, smart folks I've been chatting to of late have been saying the same thing. Treat this with a product because, you know, yeah. you're going to invest in it. You, you've said it perfectly. You've got to manage it. You've got to own it effectively to make mm-hmm. it useful to enable all your developers to be proficient. Yeah. Developers have very high expectations. So as a as a part developer myself, I know that you know, end users who are non-technical have fewer expectations for tech products that they're using. So an end user has uh, an internet bank broken or you get some transactions lost by Challenger Bank and there will be a bit of complaining, but not as much of complaining as when you, God forbid, break some specific case on an API for a, a service that is free to use and everyone's abusing. So developers are very, very, very demanding. So you, you you want to keep them happy and you want to keep the dev experience good. One final question I wanted to ask you is what do you think the future of platforms is going to look like? You and I talked off mic about, say, lambdas and functions and stuff. Do you think it's going to go that way, all into functions as a service? Or do you think it's going to be some kind of hybrid situation? That's a very interesting one. So in my personal bubble, I think I've seen people going for all the things first. So mm-hmm. all the uh, distributed workloads, all the um, ECSs and the Kubernetes and uh, all of that, and all the serverless. So serverless was mm-hmm. all, all the rage was two years ago. And then I saw something that looked like developer fatigue. So we've reached a point, in my view, where there's too much going on, where, yes, it's very, very easy to to deploy new functions and new services and to scale things and to do this as a service and this as a service. But with so much going on, developers just want to go back to writing code. So they just want to write application code again and not play with the bells and whistles around it. So to have something much, much simpler. And... As one person said, you have a problem when your Terraform code to deploy a Lambda is longer than your Lambda. And we face a lot of this now. So I think we might see a comeback of all rounder platforms. I've seen, I've seen a lot of firms developing them internally. There's so much money being poured in, money and resource and time being poured into developing internal platform products which don't go well because there's much less product delivery involved into developing them than you would expect for a product as in the requirements are not triple checked with the devs so they're very someone's highest person in the room's brain dump or they're not 
documented really well. They're too loose, too strict, don't fit the most important use cases, difficult to understand, too opsy, not opsy enough, too expensive, too much procurement involved. I think we might see a comeback of public platforms very soon, or it might be an opportunity for someone's business. Very interesting. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you again. Thanks so much for your time. Likewise. Thank you.